0: Um, but I believe necessary uh, that uh, we are not meant to live past one another but we're meant to live with one another and and so sometimes it'll be challenging Um, and so as we wrap up as we've uh, looked at the different themes of the scriptures to show uh, that transculturalism is at the very heart of God this idea of a diverse community is at the very heart of God as we look at the book of Revelation I want to leave you with an exhortation I'd love to leave you with an exhortation Now, this word exhortation comes from the Greek word paraklesis, which means to call to one's side, to summon, to encourage, to plead, but also to admonish, to reprimand, or to rebuke. See, to exhort is to develop relationships with other believers for the purpose of encouraging them in their spiritual growth. So that's not always good stuff, but sometimes it means uh, shining light in areas of darkness, it means admonishing one another and rebuking one another. And so, I, I want to exhort you guys, as we struggle on this journey of wanting to be transcultural. I want to leave you with an exhortation that we find in the book of Revelation. Now, remember the, our definition of what it means to be transcultural. It's a it's a community that reflects, embraces, and enjoys the diversity of its context but by the power of the gospel transcends it and creates one new community. That's how we define transculturalism. Maybe a simpler way to say it, and we've said it over and over again through our series, is that God is forming a family for himself from all people. God is forming a family for himself from all people. And what I normally do is I'll I read the text and then I pray, but we're going to walk through the text. And so if you have your Bible, uh, meet me in the book of Revelation, chapter 7. We're going to start at verse 9. And so we're just literally going to walk through verse by verse, and I'll just stop at some places and then unpack it. Some places will kind of fly over. All of this so that I might exhort you, that I might encourage you. In some places so that I might plead with you. I might admonish and rebuke. But all of this, the purpose of all of this is to encourage you in your spiritual growth. To keep your eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, who is Jesus Christ. And he's the only one that's going to allow us or help us to be a truly transcultural community. And so let me pray. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we thank you for just the richness of your word. Um, that it is relevant today as it was when it was first penned. These ancient words continue to transform human hearts. And so I'm asking that this morning you would do that through your word, that your spirit would take hold of us, that many of us are coming in from different backgrounds and different realities and different challenges. But I ask that you would keep our eyes fixed on you. I pray against any distractions here this morning. I ask that you reveal yourself to us. And so it's to that end that I ask that you would stand in my body, think through my mind, speak through my mouth those things you have us know, say, and do. Uh, May the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Father, we love you, we praise you, and would you show us through your very text our desperate need for you. In Jesus' beautiful, beautiful name. Amen. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 is where we will begin. But let me give a little bit of context. This book was written by John, uh, the apostle, one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, you see, he was going around preaching the good news, uh, preaching the gospel, seeing people being transformed, seeing communities being transformed. But now, uh, people didn't want that. There were some, some people who, who weren't excited about what was happening. They felt like they were losing control as people were turning away from the systems of the world and turning to Christ. And so there was lots of persecution. And so many of the apostles went through this persecution. So did John. See, they captured John and they, and they beat him, and then they left him on this island called Patmos. They left him on that island to die. And so he's lying there, and I can only imagine maybe uh, clothed in blood, his own blood, after being beaten over and over again, looking to the heavens and wondering Have I wasted it all? Have I wasted my life? Is this how it ends? And so God encourages him by giving him a vision. God opens up the heavens and gives John a vision. Now this vision was not only to encourage John, but it was to encourage the church at large. And so that's the context. And so we're we're seeing what John saw. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. See in the opening verse of our passage this morning we see the promise God made to Abraham being fulfilled. The promise that God made to Abraham being fulfilled that his seed would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand of the seas. And that he would be the father of many nations. Both those promises, John sees them being fulfilled in this great multitude. This great multitude that no one could count. See, the followers of Christ the Lamb, the seed of Abraham, are this great multitude. Those who have given their lives to Jesus Christ, put their trust in Him as Lord and Savior, they are this great multitude. And we see that this great multitude is from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, making it clear that this group is not just limited to the Jews. This would have been powerful for John to see. It's not just limited to the Jews, but it extends to the Gentiles. You and I. You and I, the Gentiles. What John was seeing was a truly transcultural community. John sees everything that we are striving for. Everything that we here today are striving for, he sees it. A direct implication of the gospel. See, there were, there were no divisions. There were no sections. There, was, there wasn't a white section, and a colored section, and an Indian section, and a black section. Though my friend Albert Tate says, um, if there was a, a black section, you know that section would be off the chain when it comes to worship, right? Like he, I mean, that's, that's what he says. These are not my, my words. You'd have people walking around heaven going, hey, where are you going? Black section tonight. <laughs> it's, uh, I hear the worships off, off the chain over there. There were no divisions. He just saw a great multitude together from every nation, from all tribes, people, and languages. A truly transcultural community. Now, I'm tempted to stop here. I am. I'm I'm tempted to stop here and to go, okay, listen, you see, it's in Revelation. We can now go home. Now, let's go and be a transcultural community. But if I did that, I wouldn't be faithful to the text. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be faithful to the text. See, I've I've heard many sermons Many sermons out of Revelation chapter 7 where people talk about the, the richness of the us where they talk about diversity, that the church should be diverse, and then they stop there. But they're not being faithful to the text. See, I want to emphasize this morning that what John was seeing, or, or the, the richness here, the richness of the, the diversity of heaven, was not the main thing. It was not the main thing. The the transcultural community that that John saw was not the centerpiece of heaven. It wasn't the focus of heaven, but rather an implication. Something else blew John's mind. And yes, we see this diversity, we see this transculturalism, and I can understand maybe in our context, in our time, we might go, but that's amazing, and it is. But it's not the focal point. It's rather an implication of the centerpiece. You see, we also see that the the great multitude was standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. In Hebrew tradition, people stood in the presence of royalty. They stood in the presence of deity. The throne repeatedly refers to God in the book of Revelation. Revelation. Over and over again, every time we see the throne, it's talking about God. Because he's the one who is seated on the throne, fully in control. The lamb, the lamb that John sees is in parallel assembly with the throne. And we know that the lamb is Christ. And so this indicates that Christ is on par with God. This is clear affirmation of the divinity of Christ. That he is a part of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are equal in identity, equal in essence, equal in power, equal in glory. John sees that. He sees it. He sees the throne and he sees the Lamb. He sees this great multitude, this transcultural community standing before them. But he sees more. There's so much more that John sees. He sees that the great multitude was clothed in white. White is used symbolically of victory and purity. But in this context, it probably refers to the glorified heavenly bodies of those who have persevered till the end for the sake of Christ. For those who remained in Christ, anchored themselves in Christ, they are clothed in white. As a sign of victory and purity. Not their own, but the victory that Jesus has accomplished for them. We also see that the great multitude had palm branches in their hands. Again, palm branches being uh, traditional symbols of victory and thanksgiving. Here the picture is of thanksgiving, the the great multitude having gone through difficult times here on earth are now able to look to the one who is seated on the throne, are now able to look to the Lamb and are thankful, are thankful of the sacrifice that was made on their behalf. They're clothed in white. They have these palm branches. But we also see that they cried out. They cried out. They go, go, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. See, the word salvation here means deliverance. And this is not so much a personal song of deliverance, but, but, but one of praise. They are praising the one who is seated on the throne. They are praising the Lamb for the salvation that they have received from Him. The deliverance that they've received from Him. It was the suffering and the death of Christ the Lamb that allowed this great multitude to overcome It's because of what happened on the cross. The death of Jesus. Because Jesus overcomes, we can overcome. And so they praise him for it, acknowledging that salvation belongs to him. It's not because of anything that we have done. It's not because of our works. It's not about where we went to school, how much money we have in our bank accounts, how much influence we have. None of that will save us. It's because of what happened on the cross, the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. And so this great multitude praises Him. The thanksgiving of the great multitude is directed to God. All of it is directed to God. But not only are the the great multitude praising the entire court of heaven fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. So it's not just the great multitude, but, but all of heaven. All of heaven. We see this in verse 11 and 12. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. All of heaven worships the one who is seated on the throne. They worship the lamb who died, who died in our place so that we might be delivered, so that we might have salvation. This picture of heavenly worship is a repeat of what John saw in Revelation chapter 4. It's what O.G. read to us. It's a repeat of what he saw in Revelation chapter 4. They cry out, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. But now following the shout of praise, one of the elders turns to John and asks him a question. While all of heaven is worshipping God, one of the elders turns to John and asks him a question. He says, who are these? Who are these in white robes? And where do they come from? See, these questions are rhetorical, and we know this because of John's answer. I love it. Verse 13, who are these clothed in white robes and... From where have they come? John said, I said to him, so you know. It's like, come on. It's a rhetorical question. It's like, surely you should know. This kind of questioning is a literacy device that's common in the Bible. You see it over and over again. People asking questions, but they're rhetorical questions. It's like when my, when my wife walks into the kitchen and sees a dirty dish or dirty mug on the counter, and she says, hey, what's this? (laughs) Here's some marriage counseling uh, real quick. Gentlemen, your wives have not all of a sudden now forgotten that that is a plate and that is a cup. But what they're asking is, what on earth is it doing on the counter? Should it not be in the sink or in the dishwasher? It's a rhetorical question. And so don't make the mistake. This is free, guys, marriage counseling. Don't make the mistake of answering the question and going, it's a dish and a mug. No, but rather pick up the item in question and if you know that you're in the wrong and you, you, you know, like, listen, I need to rectify this quickly, then apologize and then proceed to where uh, those items should be. If you have no idea what's going on, maybe you're young in the game, pick up the item, apologize, and then walk with confidence. Just walk out of the room as if you know where you need to go. That has saved me many a times. Um, my wife is here, and uh, in case it was marriage counseling, I had to, it's, and it's for free. The same thing happens here with one of the elders. He, he asks John a rhetorical question. Who are these dressed in white? Where do they come from? These are the ones who come out of great tribulation. These are the ones who come out of great tribulation. They come out of great hardship, great suffering, great persecution. Now some argue that they are martyrs. Those who have died for the sake of the gospel. But there's nothing in the passage to limit that to this. That we can extend it to, to anyone who has suffered for the sake of Christ. Anyone who has gone through great tribulation for the sake of Christ. And I have a question for you. I had to ask myself this question in preparation. Do I experience tribulation? Do we experience tribulation for the sake of Christ? Do we experience persecution or suffering for the sake of Christ? Because if you are a Christian, if you've crossed the line of faith, you should. Now I know that's weird to hear because because we have so many churches and so many movements out there that, that are saying, listen, if you come to Christ, you will get everything that you want. You will never suffer again. Health, wealth, and prosperity. Come to Christ. That's what He wants to give you. I don't see that in Scripture. I don't see it in the Scriptures. But rather I see that those who have crossed the line of faith, those who call themselves Christians, should expect tribulation. They should expect suffering. But if you don't believe me, let's, let's look at First Peter chapter 4. One of Jesus' disciples, he writes this, Beloved, talking to Christians, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. He says, guys, listen, when, when suffering comes your way, don't act surprised. Like, hey, what, what's going on? I, I, I thought, becoming a Christian, I don't experience this anymore. But rather, he says, listen, for those who are in Christ, expect it. He goes on, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's the suffering and persecution and tribulations that you will experience for the sake of Christ. But you might be sitting here and going, mm, I'm still kind of wrestling with that. And again, that's just Peter, right? Didn't he deny Jesus like three times? Okay. Okay. Let's go to Jesus then. John chapter 15. Jesus says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus says, listen, if you're going to identify yourself with me, then it has to be all of me. All of me. And so if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute You also. But remember, this is all for the sake of the gospel. It's all for the sake of the gospel. It's not because you are annoying. It's not because you're annoying. But rather because you're saying, listen, I believe in the gospel. I believe that this gospel has transformed my life, and so it's changed everything—the way I handle my money, the way I handle my relationships, the way I handle my sex life. It changes everything, and so the world looks at that and says, "Listen, that's kind of foolish. Why would you want to? Why would you want to stay in your marriage? Why, why would you? Do, why, why do you want to generously give? Why, why would you do that? that's foolish? That's so the world will hate you. The world will." persecute you? And so we must ask ourselves these questions. If I identify myself with Christ, do I experience these tribulations? See, I believe, I believe there are many reasons that, that maybe some of us might say, no, I don't. I don't experience these tribulations. I believe there are many reasons, but I'm going to highlight two. For the sake of time, I'm going to highlight two. Two reasons why I think the church today, especially in our context, doesn't experience suffering. The first reason is I believe we separate ourselves from the culture. We separate ourselves from the culture. We create these holy huddles where it's just us, just Christians. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't gather. This is incredibly important. We're called together. The scripture says it over and over again to be encouraged, to be reminded of the rich truths of the gospel. But we're also called to scatter we're called to go into the broken places of our society with the message of the gospel, the message of hope. But we don't do that. We hang out with people who are like us and agree with everything that we believe in. And so you have no friends that are like, listen, man, I, 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 don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe Jesus existed. That's ridiculous. We don't, we don't have those friends. We separate ourselves from the world. And so when we do that, then, it's, then obviously you're not going to experience any persecution or suffering because everybody agrees with everything that you say. The second reason I believe we don't experience persecution is that we look exactly the same as the broken world out there. We're no different. We wear the t-shirt that says Christian but we're no different. We handle money exactly the same. Our marriages look exactly the same. We compromise. So that we might be uh, liked and favored, we compromise. So much so that I, I think for, for many of us, and listen, I'm not, I'm not throwing any punches. I came to the text myself and I was convicted. Deeply convicted. We look, we look so much the same as the world that for many of us, if we told our friends, listen, I'm a Christian, they'd be like, what? Come on. Seriously? You're a Christian. It's like they know the standards better than you do about what it means to be a Christian. And so they call you out. They're like, listen, I don't believe in this, but, but if you say you do, shouldn't you live this way? We either separate ourselves from the culture or we look exactly the same. Sometimes we can be annoying and irritating. You might be sitting here going, no, no, listen, I'm in there, man. I'm in there with the gospel. Not realizing that you're actually just a Bible basher. You're not taking time to get to know people. You don't want to hear their stories. This is what the Bible says. Not realizing that there's brokenness there. There's hurt there. Messiness there. I'm not saying that we shouldn't preach the truth. We should, but we should do it in love. The gospel both attracts and repels people. The gospel both attracts and repels people. It's this dance that happens. That if you preach the gospel, people will be attracted to it, to the mercy and grace and love that they find in it. But at the same time, it will repel people. Because what the gospel says is that listen, you are not in control of your own life, you are not the master of your own destiny. Whatever you're running to, hoping you will find life in, you will not. And so that offends people. Before I came to Christ, it offended me. Dr. Timothy Keller says this. Speaking about how the church should experience suffering and persecution if we're really being the church. He says, the gospel both attracts and repels people. If you're always getting persecuted, you're probably a jerk. If you're never getting persecuted, you're probably a coward. That cuts deep. And those aren't my words. That's Dr. Timothy Keller. You can take it up with him. If you're that person that wears the t-shirt, but people just never, they don't know that you're a Christian. It's It's like a surprise. Then you're probably a coward. But if nobody wants to hang around with you because you, you, you're the guy like, no, but the Bible says, the Bible says, that, no, the Bi-. stop being a jerk. The ones clothed in white are the ones who have just come out of great tribulation, great hardships, great suffering, great persecution for the sake of the gospel. They have labored and they have labored hard for the sake of the gospel. That's why I agree with my friend Leon's Crump when he says, when I enter heaven, I want to enter in exhausted so that I might rest. Because I've labored here. I've gone through it all. I identify myself with Christ we're told that the ones coming out of great tribulation have washed their robes. See, washing is for purity. This idea of being made holy, to be set apart. And as a result of washing their robes, these ones, these individuals who have come out of great tribulation, they are made white in the blood of the Lamb. They are made white in the blood of the Lamb. Now the literal meaning seems strange. How can garments be made white by washing them in blood? See, this paradox focuses on the idea of victory through suffering. Again, it's clear in the text. Victory through suffering. We should look to our perfect example who is Christ Jesus himself. Attained victory through suffering. That's why he was the unlikely hero. No one saw it coming. All of Israel was waiting for uh, the king who is on his horse with the sword and shield. Not the suffering servant. And so this great multitude, clothed in white, because they have been washed in the blood of the lamb. The suffering and death of the saints allows them to identify this act with the suffering lamb himself. The suffering of Jesus Christ. And so indeed, Christians wash themselves by being faithful in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trial. We remain faithful, thus participating in the work that Jesus is doing. But then this chapter, it ends quite beautifully. Our passage this morning ends quite beautifully. It ends with a poem. And this poem is a, we find it in in a synonymous parallelism. Big words. Using a series of Old Testament references. These would not have been new to this great multitude. It wouldn't have been new to this great multitude. They would have heard these words before because they would have anchored themselves in them. These Old Testament promises. How do you stand in the midst of trials? You anchor yourself in Scripture. You hold on to the promises that we find in Scripture. All of them which have been made yes in Christ. And so these words wouldn't have been new to this great multitude. They would have heard them before. But now they get to hear them in the full completion of Christ's work. As they stand, brothers and sisters together, worshiping the one who is seated on the throne. It is now finished. Because the saints have been faithful in persecution, they are now before the throne, meaning they dwell in the full presence of God. They dwell in the full presence of God. Of God in perfection. Now I know some of you might go, but surely don't we experience that here and now? We do. We do. But there's still sin. There is still sin here. And so yes, I stand as a Christian, as, as one who has been covered by the blood of the Lamb. But I also stand as one who's like, I struggle. I struggle with lust. I struggle with pride, anxiety, and listen guys i 'm not just listing sins i 'm telling you what I struggle with. These are my struggles, personal struggles. And so when I give in to these struggles, I turn away from God. I turn away from him. But what John sees is is this great multitude who is now in the full presence of God. There is no sin, there is no sin. And we'll see that in a moment. We're told that the status of those who are in God's presence, it's it's clear to us. They worship Him day and night within His temple. They worship Him day and night within His temple. This means that they have true fellowship with God. True fellowship with God. In its perfection. Again, you might sit here and go, but I thought I have that now. You do. But we live in a broken world. And so when I give in to lust, again, I'm not just listing sins. I'm telling you my struggles. When I give in to lust, I turn away from the fellowship that God offers to me. But what we see here is the great multitude experiencing this perfect fellowship with God. We're told that the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them Just as God spread a tabernacle over the people of Israel, God's protection causes them not to be harmed. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. God's protection will keep them from harm. God's protection will keep them from harm. This is a promise that has been given to us It's given to us and it's it's declared yes in Christ that God protects us. He protects us. And this great multitude is now experiencing the fullness of that. The relationship of God to his conquering people, those who have persevered till the end, those who have not compromised, those who have not given to comfort and convenience, but have anchored themselves in Christ. This relationship is described using the metaphor of a shepherd. God is a shepherd to his people. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of water. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is Psalm 23 language. The Lord is my shepherd. Now it's in its fullness. The shepherd will guide them to streams of living water. He will wipe every tear. How I long for that. I long for that. I'm tired of hearing about people dying, I'm tired of hearing about wars. Selfish gain. I'm tired of discussing the poverty that exists in our world. I'm tired of the injustice that we face. John sees the shepherd wiping every tear. It'll be no more. That's what we long for. We experience it now, but we, we long for its fullness. The Lord is our shepherd. See, this imagery of the shepherd emphasizes God's guidance, God's provision, God's comfort, God's compassion, and God's protection. And all of these promises we can hold on to now. This is why we do what we do, is because we're saying, listen, there's hope. There's hope. You don't have to run to those things. You don't have to, to run to the success or sex relationships, money, academics. You don't have to run to these things. Run to Christ. Run to Christ. What He has promised, He will fulfill. And and so John gets to see this. The fulfillment of these promises, he gets to see this. I can only imagine him lying there on this island, seeing all of this and going, you know what, it's worth it. It's worth it. Christ the Lamb is the shepherd. In the same way that God was the shepherd of the people of Israel, Christ the Lamb is our shepherd. He is the shepherd of his people. And his people are a transcultural community. Do you see how that is an implication of the gospel? A transcultural community is not the gospel. It will not save you. We can be the most diverse community in the city of Pretoria, but if we are not anchored in the gospel, if we are not anchored in the gospel, we're just another great community. Another really cool place to hang out when you have time. As opposed to being a light to the nation. Taking hope to where there is none. But before we can do that as a community, you need to do that individually. And so, as you are seated here, you have to ask yourself this question Do I believe this? Do I believe this? Do I believe that Christ is my shepherd? Or am I running to all these other different things, hoping that they will provide comfort for me and that they will protect me? Do I hold on to my degrees? Like I do, I I hold on to my degrees. They will not save me. Christ must be our shepherd if we truly want to be a transcultural community if we if we want to reveal to the world the true intentions of our God and savior we must be anchored in the gospel Christ is the lamb he is the shepherd of these people who are a transcultural family and so as we wrap up our series, I hope you see that this is why we strongly, strongly believe in being a transcultural community. One that is anchored in the gospel. That, that It's not an addendum to the gospel, but a direct implication of the gospel. And as we've seen in Revelation, my hope is that as you wrestle now, as you wrestle now, that you see that our present struggle has a perfect future reality. I hope that would give you hope. This is hard, guys. This is really, really hard. I think I walked into this thinking, man, this is going to be easy. We're going to start. Everyone's going to be want to be a part of this. It's going to be off the chain. This is a struggle. When you begin to draw people from different backgrounds and different realities, different ethnicities and cultures and socioeconomic classes it's hard. And so the temptation is to go, mm, it's nice, it's nice, but now I want to go. I want to go hang out with people who are like me. And so this becomes like an extra. You're out there doing your own thing and then you'll come here to get that dose of like, this is great. I want you to know that our prison struggle has a perfect future reality. But We don't have to wait for the future to experience it. That we can enjoy that now. We can enjoy that now. How how can I say this? How did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? What, What is it? I know you all know it. I knew this before I became a Christian. I'll start us off. Our Father, who art in heaven, thy will be done stop right there, on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to cry out to the God who sits on his throne. Plead with him and say what is happening in heaven may may come down to earth. May we experience that. And I believe as we do that as a small community, we may be small in number but big in heart, as we do that as a small community, people will begin to see and go, hold on, you're saying that I can live forever like this? I want in. I want in. We become a preview for the real show. We can experience that right here and right now. But at the same time, I am aware that it is difficult. And so we must be hopeful. Family, we must be hopeful. And so I want to I close with these words of hope um, from a man that I admire. I admire him deeply. I know many of you do as well. Words taken from a speech that he gave the night, the night where well, he was to die the very next day. He also had a pursuit to see a transcultural community. He didn't call it that way, but he wanted to see it. His pursuits to see a community that reflected, embraced, and enjoyed the diversity of his context, but by the power of the gospel, transcended it and created one new community. It cost him his life. Talk about trials and tribulations for the sake of the gospel. It cost him his life. I not know many of you know who I'm talking about. Martin Luther King, Jr., the Great Mountain Top Speech. He gives the speech, not knowing that the very next day he would be killed for his very pursuit to see a community that reflected and embraced and enjoyed the diversity of its context. And so I'm going to close with his words. The last paragraph of his speech, my Hope is that you would hear these words and remain hopeful. We have great challenges ahead of us, but remain hopeful. We may grow slowly, but remain hopeful. Because I know God is at work. I see it. I see it. And so hear these words of Martin Luther King. He cries out to the people so prophetically, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't really matter to me because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would love to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And He's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Let's pray. And so Father, as we close this series, as we wrap up, as we've just heard the words of Martin Luther King, I I hope that they would resonate with us. As he talks about wanting to live a long life, that's a desire for many of us. We, We desire longevity. But he says he's not concerned about that right now. He's not concerned about the comforts of this world and convenience. He just wants to do God's will. And so, Father, we want to do your will. We want to anchor ourselves in the gospel. We want to be obedient to your word. We just want to do your will. Martin Luther King says that you've allowed him to see the promised land. Father, we have seen how it ends in the book of Revelation. You've allowed us to see how it ends. And so I hope that that would allow us to persevere till the end. That we would walk out of here happy. Yes, acknowledging that difficult times and struggles lay in front of us, but we would walk out of here joyful because you've attained the victory. You've accomplished the work. It is done and finished. And so help us to trust you, and to walk with you. Our eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.